Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. When you visit a museum or historic site and view artworks, exhibits, or artifacts, have you ever wondered where what you're seeing came from or how it got there in front of you? Sometimes the stories can be just as fascinating and maybe even as intriguing. And sometimes the path to that museum was a nefarious one. On today's show, we'll hear a few of those kinds of stories from Nancy Moses. She's the author of the book Stolen, Smuggled, Sold on the Hunt for Cultural Treasures. Nancy Moses, welcome to the program. Thanks for the opportunity. And Nancy Moses also has a a wide background in uh, uh, museums and uh, as chair of the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission as well. If you have a question or comment, give us a call. Call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. First of all, I love the book. What was the genesis of this book? Well, actually, there were two genesis. Um, The first one is kind of funny. I was at a cocktail party. And That's where all these stories start, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right, over a glass of wine. <laughs> and I ran into a guy who worked for an insurance company, and I had this idea about doing something about stolen something, something museum objects. He says, oh, there's lots for you to draw from, Nance. And I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, every museum has, has stuff in it that's stolen. And I thought, well, what did he mean? At the time, I was a museum director. I was the director of Philadelphia's History Museum. And I didn't think we had anything that was stolen. But what he meant was not was that it had an incomplete ownership line called provenance. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of objects in museums are missing pieces of the provenance. And because of that, we don't know how they got there, or whether they had a dicey past, um, whether they were sold by an unscrupulous um, dealer into the museum. The other thing that was happening at the same time was that I was finishing a book, my first book, which is about um, stuff in museums that's buried in the basement that nobody knows about. It's called um, Lost in the Museum. And I thought that the last chapter I should write would be about something that was stolen from Jews during World War II. And so I started looking for that. And because I was a museum, a former museum director, I had access to people all over the country. I generally would call up a curator and ask them to show me something that was cool in the basement on my topic. Well, I could not find a museum that would do that. I, and even though- yeah, You're talking about Holocaust. Holocaust artifacts. Museums wouldn't talk about it. Wouldn't talk about it. Um, and I thought that was odd because by that time I had found out that there were over 28,000 objects with a hole in their provenance that corresponded to the, world, the years of World War II, so likely it had been stolen from Jewish families. So I knew there was a lot of stuff. And then I realized that these museums probably found it embarrassing to have things from Jewish families who had, you know, relatives who probably died in a concentration camp. Embarrassing. So I thought, well, I'll tell a good news story. I'll find a museum that had done the right thing and given an object back to the family. And so I found a list of those online. Um, I called all of those, and nobody would talk to me. Even the ones that that had given back uh, some of the stolen pieces? That's right. Why? Well, because they found that embarrassing to t- have owned it in the first place. And this one museum that I talked to was connected to a university, um, told me that they were negotiating to sell one of the objects that was Holocaust art. 
and didn't need bad publicity. So I decided at that point to put the idea to rest, to finish my first book. And as I was thinking about something to write in the future, I thought, oh, I'll go out and find all those Holocaust artworks. And I don't care if I embarrass those museums. Um, but I started reading about Holocaust art and um, the plight of Jews during World War II, and it was too dark a subject. So I couldn't spend six years thinking about that. So I put it, I started thinking about the topic in a larger framework. And what I realized is the obvious, which is there's been wars from the beginning of time. And every single time, the victor has taken the treasures of the vanquished. So that's what I thought I would write about. And um, I would find these odd objects that had been stolen, smuggled, or sold that had somehow a museum connection, and I'd follow the trail along with my readers. Well, I think one of uh, the descriptions of your book is it reads like a detective novel. It really does, because you went to these places, talked to so many people involved in the museums uh, who had some relationship with the objects, and uh, it does read like an, a detective story. Now, there is one story in particular that focuses on a piece that uh, was stolen uh, by the Nazis. And we'll, we'll talk about that painting in, in just a moment. But I want to start with something that is near and dear here to central Pennsylvania, and that's the Civil War. But even go back before that, North Carolina's original copy of the Bill of Rights. Now, one of the really fascinating parts of your book is that you provide a lot of background, a lot of history into these objects and you know how they were stolen even before they were stolen history of the the time period and all that so let's go back to 1789-1790 and bill of rights copies of the bill of rights that were sent out okay thanks for that question um so here's where the story starts it starts with george washington um and the federal government they want to get the constitution passed North Carolina will not uh, sign the Constitution, and a couple other ones won't, because there's no Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights is put together, and copies are sent to each of the states. North Carolina gets its copy as well. And once it, North Carolina gets the copy of the Bill of Rights, which protects the rights of individuals, um, the legislature approves the Bill of Rights and signs the Constitution. Twelve amendments, by the way. Twelve amendments. Only ten get through. Right. The other two are sort of boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in any case, say the when the Bill of Rights comes to North Carolina, it's checked in and signed off, you know, by an official there, um, and he writes on the back. Um, his name. The Bill of Rights gets stuck in a drawer um, in a cabinet in the State House, and that's where it sits until the very end of the Civil War. At the very end of the Civil War, actually after Appomattox, um, the Union Army um, is brought in, it, it inv essentially invades um, Raleigh, North Carolina. And Raleigh is the capital. They've seen that the end is in sight, so they don't even put up a battle. 
and uh, the Union occupy the Union Army, um, tens of thousands of soldiers occupy Raleigh, and a group of them are put on the capital um, du- duty to guard the capital and the Bill of Rights. Well, as it turns out, one of those soldiers from Ohio decides he's going to bring home um, a souvenir, as did many soldiers. And his souvenir was North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights. He brought it back to Tippecanoe, Ohio, where he sold it for $5 to one of his buddies, who took it and put it as a um, souvenir in a frame on the wall of his office, where it's, it hung on the wall um, for, oh, 70, 80 years. He dies, his wife dies, it fall, it's in the hands of his daughters. And his daughters decide to sell it because they think it's valuable, and it ends up in the hands of an antique dealer who's a little dicey. Um, he actually uh, appeared on the Antique Roadshow. We don't talk about that, though. <laughs> <laughs> He's long gone, put it that way. Right. <laughs> so it ends up in this with this antique dealer's little dicey. Yeah. And uh, he decides he's going to sell it. Uh, but he knows that maybe North Carolina will come and want it, want it back. Uh, so, he's, so he concocts a story. He's, he found it in um, a flea market in upper state New York which is what's connected to a lot of these stories about stuff that's stolen. There's always some sort of strange backstory, that, and it's often the same one for every object. Well, at the, and just for some background there, there was an original copy of the Declaration of Independence found in a frame that someone bought for like four bucks at a flea market around the same time, and that helped to, in, in this guy's mind, helped to establish the price range for this copy of the Bill of Rights, correct? That's right. Mm. Um, so he he promises the the two women who whose it was that he would not just sell it to anybody, that he would sell it, he would make sure that it ended up in a museum. And so the way you end up, you make sure it ends up in a museum, even if the museum's poor, is you find somebody who wants to buy the thing and donate it to a museum and get a major tax deduction. And in fact, there are a couple of people around who purchase those um, objects and do this as a matter of course, uh, rich hedge fund people. Um, and so that's what the deal was. And the um, potential buyers decide that they need um, to find a museum to donate it to. And they think, hmm, who would want a copy, a free copy of the Bill of Rights? And then they go, Eureka! There's a new museum that's about to open in Philadelphia called the National Constitution Center. Maybe they would want it. And so they contact the head of the National Constitution Center, who is actually Joe Torcella. Now the Pennsylvania State Treasurer. Right. Now the Pennsylvania State Treasurer, and they offer a free copy of the Bill of Rights. And because Joe is smart enough to know that nothing comes for free, he says, yeah, sounds like a good idea, but let's make sure it's the real thing. 
and he's, they agree to send it. Everybody agrees, the buyers and sellers, and Tercella's office, to send it to experts in D.C. who know um, early federal documents. And they take a look at it, and they discover that because of the markings on it, that it came from North Carolina and belongs to North Carolina. So, by that time, North Carolina's governor knows about it because at the time Ed Rendell was um, the governor, and um, Rendell was tight with Joe Torcella. He was he actually was a um, moving force behind the National Constitution mm-hmm. Center. So, his counterpart in North Carolina puts the FBI on the case to recover the Bill of Rights. And North Carolina calls the FBI. The FBI shows up in um, Torcello's office, Joe Torcello's office, and persuades Joe to set up a sting where the FBI would come in and, and grab the Bill of Rights and take it back to North Carolina, which they did. And after um, about seven or eight years of litigation, the Bill of Rights is now in the basement of the archive in North Carolina. But one thing that you, you, you didn't mention there was the, you were talking about uh, the antique dealer, and uh, you know he had made an arrangement with the, the daughters of the guy who bought it for like $5, was that he wanted to sell... He wanted to sell the, uh, well, he wanted a buyer, put it that way. But one of the buyers that he thought about was selling North Carolina's Bill of Rights back to North Carolina, where they would have to pay millions of dollars for their own Bill of Rights. That's right. That is one of the most poignant parts of this story, because through that, from 1865 forward to 2000, and something when this was all going down, North Carolina knew where that Bill of Rights was. They'd been offered it for sale three, four times, and in each time they refused to buy it. And I said to myself, didn't they have the money? Was there another reason? And it turns out the reason has to do with how much they valued it, not how little, because they, they felt time and again that it was too important to commoditize, hmm. to to see as um, just another piece of paper, that it had greater importance and value, and that they owed it to the Bill of Rights and its place in their history not to purchase it. Hmm. And by the way, just to, uh, as kind of a little addition onto that story, Pennsylvania is also a state where we don't know where our original Bill of Rights is. That's right. We don't. Some people have suspicions. In a museum somewhere? Well, uh, actually, it's a yeah. longer story, and I would I, I hope you'll um, read the book and find uh, okay. about it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Our guest is Nancy Moses, author of the book Stolen, Smuggled, Sold, On the Hunt for Cultural Treasures. She's also chair of the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission and will be speaking tonight at the State Museum of Pennsylvania about the book. It's at uh, 530 tonight. If uh, you would like to attend, you'll hear that, that story and a little bit more information about the story about North Carolina's uh, original copy of the Bill of Rights and other stories about the book and answer some questions as well. That's tonight at 530. If you have a question or comment right now during our program, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalk. W-I-T-F. Again, that number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, so let's talk about uh, some artwork, that uh, a classic painting that was stolen by the Nazis. We opened our conversations talking about how that kind of uh, was what motivated uh, writing the book. The portrait of Adele Block Bauer won. Stolen by the Nazis. I am pronouncing that correctly, I hope. Pretty close. Okay, pretty close. <laughs> All right, so there is not a Pennsylvania tie-in here, but let's talk about uh, how this was stolen, this painting. It's right on the cover of the book, the painting, by the way, a picture of the of the painting. It is a classic. It is a beautiful painting, but it was stolen by the Nazis. Right. Um, the painting was painted by um, a really famous Austrian artist named Gustav Klint. And it, it's a picture of uh, a Jewish society woman. And um, she's quite gorgeous and glamorous. And her husband, who was considerably older, commissioned the painting. Um, they lived in Austria at the time when it was a fabulous city, a lot like Paris. And in Vienna, you mean? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Vienna. They mm-hmm. lived in Vienna. Um, and it was a fabulous city, and um, the Bauers were very prominent. In any case, um, at the by the the be right before World War II, um, Adela Bloschbauer by this time is dead, and so is the artist, and her husband is sort of um, hunkered down in his fancy house in the middle of Vienna. And the day before the Nazis come in um, to Vienna, he leaves. He flees. He's this really wealthy guy, and he just leaves. And he leaves everything in his entire house in situ. He doesn't take anything but his clothes and and some money. And he um, leaves for um, Switzerland, where he spends the rest of the war. They have no children, but they do have um, nephews and nieces. And after the war, the nephews and nieces work to get the painting back. They know where it is. It's hanging in a prominent place on the wall of the most important museum in Austria, the Austrian National Museum called the Belvedere. But the Belvedere refuses to, to give it up. And in fact, all of Austria and Austrian government, the law is set up in a way to stonewall any Jews that want to get property that was stolen during World War II. So the family fights to get this painting back, but they, they, they can't get any traction until about 
80, uh, about 70 years after the end of the war, when um, the Austrian government is in, becomes embarrassed enough to open the archives so that people can do research and find a link between their property in the past um, and its location today. And um, the last remaining heir of the uh, Bloschbauer family is a woman named Maria Altman. And she's living in Los Angeles. And one of, the f one of her um, friends has a grandson who happens to be a particularly tenacious and talented lawyer. And he, he's, he's not very old. He's an associate in a big firm. Um, but he gets so tied up in this cause that he leaves his law firm and spends the next couple years working with this woman to get the painting back. He has a big challenge in front of him because no government, no museum in the world has ever given anything back to the Jewish families. And he has to persuade the Austrian government to do that. And the way he does that is very clever. He finds a loophole that allows him to take the case up to the Supreme Court of the United States and gain permission to sue the Austrian government. Now, that's not the end of the story because permission does not equal success. He and Maria Altman have to go to Austria and make their case before the Austrian Supreme Court. By that time, the Austrians are so embarrassed by the and shameful about um, what they have done to the to you know Jewish descendants that they back off and they say, okay, you can have this painting back even though it's a national treasure. The painting goes back to Altman and within the year, she sells it. <laughs> what does she get for it? What does she get for it? Yeah. She gets more $134 million, which is more than anyone had ever painted, paid for a painting up to that time. And she gets it um, from a guy named Ronald Lauder, who's who's creating a museum called the Neue, um, which is a museum of Austrian and German art, and it's across the street from the Metropolitan Museum, so you can go see the painting uh -huh. today. You, you know, I, I, if, if we're listening to uh, these these stories, probably one of the questions that is uh, that many people are, are asking themselves, you know. You know, I led into my introduction. Have you ever wondered where many of the museums in the United States and around the world, but especially here in the United States, I mean, are there stolen artworks, stolen pieces in those museums? Well, stolen is a dicey kind of confusing concept. Let's take a piece of art that was taken from the home of a Jewish family living in Warsaw, Poland. So the family leaves. The painting is um, left in the house. After the war, it ends up for it ends up in Paris. It's in a gallery. 
the gallery sells it to a museum in Muncie, Indiana. There's a lot, of, you know, the museum pays for it fair and square. Is that stole, is that nefarious? Is that is it the responsibility of the museum to give it back? Not legally. Can the Jewish families go and try to get it? Sure. But it's a very expensive process. Um, the lawsuits are very expensive to bring. And they're on contingency, so you have to find a lawyer who's willing to take the risk and, and pursue the thing, the case. I'm, I'm curious if uh, you, when you said you talked about uh, the museum being embarrassed or the Austrian government being in, embarrassed, at that time, there was a lot of media attention on stolen artworks uh, during the Holocaust and before World War II stolen by by the Nazis. Probably that's one of the reasons that they were ambassadors because there was more attention on it. But here in the United States, the, the, the film that was out a few years ago starring George Clooney, Monument Men, I wonder if that brought attention to this issue as well. You know what? You're absolutely right it did, Scott. And in a way that nobody really imagined at, to the extent that nobody really imagined. Now, all over the country, in art museums and also archaeology museums and anthropology museums, they have staff full-time who work on repatriating their artwork, getting it back to the original families. In the case of the museums of uh, natural history and, and archaeology and anthropology, they have Native American material. They're, they work very hard to get it repatriated and get it back to the, the tribes of origin. So the world's changing in really wonderful ways. But see, th there are those who would probably think, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you want people to come to your museum to see this. Why would they be motivated to give th these items back? Well, they're motivated to give the items back for two reasons. Um, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do, and because their professional museum um, colleagues expect it now more than ever. Mm. So it is something that uh, if a museum today said, you know what, we're not going to give that back if uh, the background of it was determined, they would kind of be ostracized? Uh, if it became known in a, in the wider sec sector, yeah. Mm. All right, let's talk about uh, a, a few of the other items that uh, in the last five minutes or so that we have time. The ghost dance shirt. Now, this when you were talking about Native Americans, uh, and this is, is is tied to Wounded Knee in 1890. Talking about the massacre at Wounded Knee, but it, you can talk about the item itself if you would. But how it ended up in a museum in Scotland, of all places. Oh, it's so crazy. Um, uh, on the day, the days, within a week of the massacre at Wounded Knee, the place was filled with military people. And guess what? Newspapers reporters. And I mean, this is a desolate area, and it's... It's in the middle of winter. 
Before we go any further, maybe we can explain quickly what the, the massacre at Wounded Knee is. There may be a lot more people familiar with the early 70s uh, protest at Wounded Knee, but the 1890 massacre at uh, Wounded Knee. It was a massacre of about 300 men, women, and children, um, Sioux Indians, who were moving on to the reservation um, the next day and we're, and we're in this little valley called Wounded Knee. It's a tiny little valley. And there was an incident and the, um, that, sparked a, that sparked the massacre. And all of these people were killed. And then their bodies were thrown into a mass grave right there. Um, the Indians thought that they were protected from the bullets of the soldiers because they were wearing these magical shirts called ghost dance shirts and that's the background on the ghost dance shirt but it was taken off this this um, brave's body by um, a guy who was there and it ended up traveling throughout Europe as part of the Buffalo Bill Cody Wild West show the Buffalo Bill Cody Wild West show is like these uh, huge cowboy pageants um, that people paid lots of money for. They were really popular throughout Europe. The they, um, Wild West show every winter would hang out in a city. And one when, this particular winter, they decided to go to Glasgow until the weather got better. And the guy who had taken this souvenir from Wounded Knee goes to the local museum and says, boy, do I have something for you. Would you like some authentic Indian relics? And that's how the glass, that's how the shirt ends up in the museum. So he sold it. He sold it to the museum. Museum thought, oh, cool looking Indian thing. And he, they hung it in um, their, a gallery. Uh, they didn't know what it was particularly, um, but about 100 years later, somebody who walks through the museum, a tourist, spots it right away because he's Native American, and he knows it's a, it's a um, funerary garment. It's something that the dead, you know, that was, should have been buried with the dead. And so he contacts the tribe, and the tribe spends the next seven years trying to get it back from the museum, and they're successful, and they bring it home. Well, those are the kind of stories that uh, you can read about in Nancy Moses' book, Stolen, Smuggled, Sold, On the Hunt for Cultural Treasures. She'll also talk about uh, these stories uh, tonight at the State Museum of uh, Pennsylvania. That's at 530 tonight in Harrisburg. Uh, Ms. Moses, thank you very much. Uh, very interesting, as I said. Love the book. Uh, very fascinating stories. Thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Dr. Braxton Mitchell, a professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, has been a core investigator in that school's Amish Complex Disease Genetics Program for 15 years. He's researched genome genome uh, sequencing in old order Amish communities and recently published a report indicating Amish women are an accelerated risk of heart and respiratory disease due to secondhand smoke. Dr. Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much for being with us today. 
Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Dr. Adam Heaps, Executive Director of the Clinic for Special Children in Strasbourg. The clinic provides health care for nearly 1,200 Amish youth, and they operate a research center studying the genetic health of members of the Amish and Mennonite communities. Dr. Heaps, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Dr. Mitchell, let's start with uh, your research about secondhand smoke. Uh, you know, we've known for a long time uh, that uh, you know, the secondhand smoke is not good for those who inhale it or been around it. What's different about the research here? Um, a couple of things are different. One, smoking patterns in the Amish are different than they are in many other places. Um, Amish women, primary, Amish women do not smoke. Um, Amish men, about 34% of Amish men report that they have ever smoked, um, but their pattern of smoking is a little bit different. Uh, there's much less cigarette smoking. Um, more pipe smoking and more cigar smokers among Amish men. And the intensity of smoking is probably less. Um, so, so I think that's one thing that's different about this. You know, what, what's kind of ironic about that is that uh, at least in Lancaster County, and I'm sure other parts of Pennsylvania and around the country, uh, that uh, there are many Amish farmers who grow tobacco. Yes, that's that's right. Mm. Uh, it's a big crop there. So let's talk about why women, Amish women, are at increased risk. Why? Um, so, um, so, uh, so we've known for a while that, as you said, that uh, that secondhand smoke is um, deleterious to health. Um, so what's new about this, I think, is the is that they're relatively, even in relatively light um, patterns of smoking, that those light patterns of smoking also put people put people at risk of secondhand smoke, um, and this risk shows up in terms of uh, slightly higher glucose levels, slightly higher body mass index. A um, uh, little disturbed uh, lipoprotein patterns. What about heart disease? Uh, we don't really, uh, we don't know at this much. So we know that those are all risk factors for heart disease. Uh, we don't have, we don't have firm hard data now connecting heart disease endpoints themselves to these patterns. Uh, but the implication is that this sort of adds incrementally to your risk. So this research, obviously, I mean, it, it did focus on, uh, you know, by the way, I should ask you, how, how many subjects were involved in this study? Uh, this analysis was based on, uh, gee, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I want to say 3,500. Uh, I, I think about, yeah, about, uh, yeah, about 30, that sounds about right. About thirty five hundred. Yeah, and and one of the benefits of this is it is not just in the Amish community. I mean, you you kind of have an open playing field, if you will, because uh, so many people, especially women in the Amish community, are not exposed or don't smoke themselves. So, th what can this tell us about uh, those who smoke as a whole, not just in the Amish community? Um. 
Well, first of all, it's a reminder that uh, people who smoke are causing not only harm to themselves, but also to people around them. Um, one feature that's, that's sometimes a little tricky to disentangle in many studies is that um, uh, many people exposed to secondhand smoke are, are themselves or may themselves have been smokers. So trying to disentangle what are effects due to prior smoking uh, yourself versus secondhand smoke is, um, is, can be tricky to disentangle. Not tricky in this particular study because women generally do not smoke. So, Dr. Heaps, you treat uh, many Amish patients in Strasbourg at uh, your clinic. Before we get on to talking about genetics and uh, some of the the illnesses and some of the conditions that you see, let's tie this into this research. Do you see among your patients, do you see... Uh, maybe I should ask about the, the, the effects of secondhand smoke, of smoking, of heart disease, the things that uh, Dr. Mitchell mentioned. That's not something that we focus on here at the organization. Um, we certainly see some other risk factors for disease, uh, such as a variant that was actually found by the group that, that Dr. Mitchell worked with in a variant in a gene called ApoB, which can cause a high lipid levels, which can put people at risk for heart disease. Um, so we see things like that, um, but in our pediatric population, we haven't we haven't seen secondhand smoke effects that we've been able to isolate. Hmm. And lipid, obviously, you're talking about the higher cholesterol, correct? That's right. Yeah, LDL levels or the so-called bad cholesterol. Hmm. Dr. Mitchell, and and I'll ask Dr. Heaps about this as well. And I don't know whether you can answer it, but I'll ask the question anyway. Uh, you know, it's not just smoking that uh, Amish farmers are exposed to. Uh, there are many that are exposed to herbicides and pesticides. Uh, does that increase their risk of disease due to smoke exposure? And maybe there are some other illnesses that uh, that, that present themselves as a result to being, uh, you know, being exposed to these things? So there's a lot we, uh, there's a lot we don't know. One thing we, we do know, so, so Amish in general, um, we do know that they have uh, somewhat higher levels of subclinical atherosclerosis uh, in terms of having um, higher levels of coronary artery disease, or, or of, of, I'm sorry, higher levels of um uh, coronary artery calcification, which is a, a marker of, of, of atherosclerosis. Uh, some of that we know is related to genetics. Amish are, the Amish population in Lancaster County is in, in enriched with some variants that are related to having higher LDL cholesterol levels. Whether or not there are other environmental exposures related to agriculture such as pesticides, whether that contributes also, I think, is, uh, is, is unknown. Dr. Heaps, you're the executive director of the Clinic for Special Children. It's a health clinic in Strasburg uh, that focuses on pediatric medical services for children uh, of the Amish and Mennonite community. Go back to 1989. How and why was the clinic established? So the clinic was established by Dr. Morton and his wife, Caroline, um, at the time he was working at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and noticed that there was a need in Lancaster County for local services that were specific to disorders that were seen primarily in the Amish and Mennonite communities. And so 
he traveled out here and really partnered with those communities to start the Clinic for Special Children, which has now been around for almost 30 years. Um, there are a number of genetic disorders in the population that were not being sufficiently addressed from a medical standpoint um, that are relatively rare in the general population um, that our clinic uh, has a lot of expertise treating now. Well, for example, what? What kind of uh, uh, unusual or that, uh, you know, some gen- uh, some genetic uh, diseases or illnesses, conditions that we don't see in the general population? So one of the ones that we're working on currently is called Kriegler-Najjar syndrome. And this is a disorder where people that have this have really high bilirubin levels. So bilirubin is the compound that causes jaundice in children. And I'm sure many of the listeners are, are aware of uh, that, that when children are born, they may have jaundice for a few days, and that will typically uh, resolve on its own. But for these children, they can't actually clear that bilirubin, and that puts them at risk for brain damage through something called conicterus. And so the, right now the treatment is that you have to sleep underneath UV lights because UV light can actually break down bilirubin to bring that down to safe levels. And eventually they get an elective liver transplant. And by getting a, a new liver in their body, that liver is able to make the enzyme that their body is naturally lacking that can then break down the bilirubin and bring it into, um, into normal levels. And we're actually working currently on a gene therapy clinical trial for that disease um, that we're really hoping will will make a huge impact um, on that patient. But the one interesting thing is, although we work primarily in the Amish and Mennonite communities, about 90% of our patients are, are old order Amish or old order Mennonite, these disorders do happen all over the world, but maybe a lot of times at a lower frequency. So we actually just worked with a family coming from Ukraine that has a child with Kriegler-Najjar syndrome. They just, they just recently got their visa. They haven't even come to the U.S. yet. Um, but they're coming here for treatment for their for their child uh, because they aren't able to find services locally that have been able to be effective. You know, just what you described, though, with the treatment, uh, a couple things stuck out to me. One, you treat it with UV light, and I would assume that UV light is uh, generated by electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's That's one thing. And the other thing, talking about a liver transplant, I mean, that's something you don't often hear about or don't think about, uh, you know, the, amongst the Amish, uh, the old Orama Amish that are getting those kind of uh, medical procedures done. Yeah, I think that there's there's a, a oversimplification of the Amish and Mennonites' connection to technology. I think a lot of people assume that there's a complete rejection of technology or, or there's a kind of a line in the sand that's drawn. And I think it's a little more subtle than that. I think that the Amish and Mennonites have a different connection with technology than the rest of us. And they really try to make the decision of what are the technologies that I'm going to incorporate into my personal life. And so, and the the question that a lot of times people are answering, and this is how it's been explained to me by people from the community, is will this technology bring my community together or will it have the potential of driving it apart? So if you look at at phone usage. Uh, many Amish folks, uh, as I'm sure everybody knows, um, typically don't have phones in their house. And, and one of the reasons for that is they, they want to encourage people to go and actually visit with their neighbors and talk to their neighbors face-to-face, and they feel having a phone in their house makes that too easy to not do that. Now, on the Old Order Mennonite side, um, you don't see that, that same uh, restriction, and a lot of Old Order Mennonites have cell phones, although they may only use it for business, or they may be, you know, flip-style phones that, that are not smartphones. And so each of one of the interesting things about working in some of these playing communities is that that determination of what, 
what brings us together, brings us, drives people apart, is different for each of these different communities. So on the medical side, um, the Amish and the Mennonites, typically speaking, do not reject modern health care, but they also have a different relationship to it. And so we've had plenty of patients who have had liver transplants, that have had bone marrow transplants. You know, we have people that are enrolled from these communities in gene therapy trials. Um, now, I, I've yet to see an old order Amish actually in our lab, you know, using a pipette, but they're happy to, to use the services. And I think at the end of the day, the, the patients that we treat, the families that we treat, they're, they're families like anybody else, and they want the best thing for their child. And if, if the best thing is, is doing an advanced procedure like that, um, then they'll do it. What are some of the challenges that you face, though, in, in, uh, in treating members of the community? Well, one of the big challenges is, is finances. So Amish and Mennonite folks typically do not use private or public health insurance, so they're paying out of pocket for their health care, so they're, they're self-pay. And the U.S. medical system, there's, there's actually on NPR a couple of weeks ago, there was an article talking about the cost of outpatient care in the United States and how much was spent per person. And that article said that there was about $9,600 spent every year for every person in the U.S. for health care. And it was far and above more money that was spent than any other country. The U.K., another industrialized nation that has you know, pretty good life expectancy similar to the U.S., spends about half that. And so the, the ironic thing is that for people that don't have health insurance in the U.S., they are typically facing a bill that's the retail value of their health care, which insurance companies and the governments, government don't pay. So one of the things that we have been able to be effective in is going to health care systems and advocating for our patients and advocating for members of the community and saying we feel like our patients, um, they want to pay something for their health care, but they don't want to pay the full retail price because, because that's absurd. And so instead we want to try to figure out if there's a way that we can get a significant discount for those services so that it's actually affordable for patients. Mm. Uh, Dr. Mitchell and both of you, uh, Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Heaps, uh, you, you've worked on genetics as well. Uh, as I mentioned in my introduction, Dr. Mitchell, you've been working in, on this for the last 15 years. Uh, what have we learned over the years about uh, the genetics amongst the Amish community? Um, I think we're learning a lot. We're certainly learning a lot of new biology. Um, for example, the Amish are what we can think of as a founder population, and what that what that means is that um, there were a relatively small number of Amish that immigrated to Lancaster County long ago. There, that population has grown, um, but it's still a relatively narrow gene pool. Um, so there are um, the population, the, the gene pool is, is enriched with um, a number of low fre of variants that are low frequency in other populations. These are easier to detect in the Amish because, the, because they prone in frequency. And, and some of these have health consequences. Um, Interestingly, some of these have uh, detri not only detrimental health consequences, but some of these have beneficial health consequences. And uh, for some of these, we're untangling um, what the biology is beyond this. The, bi the biology is uh, transferable to uh, all of mankind. When you, when you say that there are some beneficial health aspects, like what? Uh, 
For example, um, there is a uh, rare variant in, the, in the, a gene called APOC3 um, that, uh, that is related to how we um, process and store uh, lipids. There's a mutation in this that if you, if you have this, it's actually good. Uh, you have a protective cardiovascular risk profile. Um, this, this variant has now been seen in other populations, although at much lower frequencies, and we can now see very clearly that this, that this variant is associated with having a lower risk of heart disease and longer life expectancy. Uh, Dr. Heaps... And, uh, this makes it a very nice target for, um, for, uh, for therapeutics, because if you can mimic a drug that does the same thing as what this variant does... Uh, there, there's some irony in all of this, too, you know. Uh, Dr. Heaps, uh, you have to be very interested in Dr. Mitchell's work and what they've done when, uh, you know, the, you, you talk about the, some of the trials that uh, you've done and and studying uh, genetics as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have collaborated with the University of Maryland on a number of different studies. Um, I think that, that both of the ways that, that our organizations work are extremely valuable. Uh, Dr. Mitchell's group very much is looking at uh, large-scale associations between um, um, general maladies and genetics. And we kind of approach it from the, the opposite direction, where we're, we're starting with small groups and looking for detrimental effects and then working our way out and then trying to turn that into clinical benefit for our patients. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Heaps, we only have about uh, 60 seconds left. I want to ask about, uh, you know, lifestyle and, and health. And again, m many of us are doing this from a looking at the Amish, maybe with a stereotypical point of view and don't know a whole lot about it. But it would seem that uh, with the, the physical work that uh, many Amish do, the healthy eating, uh, that they would be in good health. Do their lifestyles, do their diets help their health? That might be a better question for uh, Dr. Mitchell, um, at least in the, the pediatric space. Um, you know, our clinic is doesn't actually see any Amish or Mennonite child. Um, we are really focusing on the children that have complex disease. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and so so some of the, the well children would be seen at normal pediatric practices, but Dr. Mitchell may be able to comment on that. Yeah. Dr. Mitchell, only have about 30 seconds. Sure. Um, I, I think we absolutely um, see um, some uh, many, many benefits and differences about the uh, Amish lifestyle. Uh, as far as we can tell, Amish seem to live as long as, um, as non-Amish. Um, uh, certainly once you, uh, um, based on a comparisons with um, uh, with, with some of the other population-based data. Uh, Amish seem to have a lower prevalence of, of diabetes than, um, than, than non-Amish, and we attribute that maybe to the highly physically active lifestyle. Mm. Hey, I'm going to um, have to cut you off at this point, though. Dr. Braxton Mitchell is a professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Adam Heaps, executive director of the Clinic for Special Children in Strasburg. Thank you both for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Tomorrow's program, Army Heritage Days at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle this week.